Ahoy! And welcome to the Sea Captain Way podcast with Phil Bender and Greg Patton, where we help listeners navigate the uncharted waters, personal and professional growth. The Sea Captain Way is about energizing top performers to take on risks and push beyond their comfort zone to pursue life-changing goals and achieve peak performance. We're going to help you build your vision by showing you how to break free of boundaries that are holding you back. So, Phil, today we're honored to have Dan Cormier, a former U.S. Army colonel, back on the Sea Captain Wave podcast. Dan is highly skilled at developing leaders to maximize the effectiveness of organizations and connecting talent to results. Prior to joining Sea Captain Coaching, Dan developed leaders for the United States Department of Defense and government. He was a professor at both the Naval and Army War Colleges, where he specialized in leadership, national security, and Middle Eastern studies. So welcome, Dan. Welcome, Dan. Welcome back, Colonel Cormier. How about <laughs> it? Good to see you and hear you today. You know, we had such a great response from your last uh, podcast. This and the topic at hand today is just going to enhance that, but it's, it is uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, no, it's been great. This is a project that I've been thinking about and peripherally uh, working on probably most of my career, but we've kind of refined it over the last six months. And uh, I thought it'd be very interesting to share with your audience. Yeah, Dan, so you've got a new program you're teaching at the U.S. Naval Leadership School called Emotional Survival. Uh, Can you please tell us about the program and what led you to this project? Yeah, so, so I think we're all very familiar with, you know, first responders, you know, firemen, policemen, the military, that you're typically in high risk, high stress jobs. And therefore, you you know, we tend to have higher rates of things like suicide, certainly attrition, mental health issues, things like that. So this is something that all the schoolhouses, all of the military organizations try to explain or, or develop in their people. It's all about building that mental resiliency or emotional toughness so that you're more conscious and more intentional about how you uh, you deal with the stress that's that's part of your life so that you can not only survive it, but actually thrive in it. Yeah. So that's interesting. Thrive in it. I think that's a powerful statement. And one of the things that moved me when we, we spoke about this early on was how do you thrive in it? And so when we discussed the program, you said these emotional survival skills also apply to the workforce outside the U.S. military and not just first responders, like you said, or medical professionals, but actually in the sales or performance field. How can these skills be transferred into civilian professions? Well, because it's physiological, right? So anybody that's in a high stress environment or has peaks of stress in their jobs could benefit from the same kind of training and understanding and coping skills that we kind of teach and profess in the military. You know, this started for me when I first went to ranger school. You know, when you go to ranger school, the first day is very physical. They kind of weed out everyone who's weak, can't swim, things like that. And then after that, it's really a mental game. It's really about finding ways to stay focused, to stay on track with your goals, and not let the uncomfortableness that you're put through sleep deprived, food deprived, fatigue, get to you, right? What I found in ranger school, I remember one of the ranger instructors one time as I was watching someone quit, he basically turned and said, there are minds and then there are weak minds. And it didn't really click with me then. I was very young, 
But the more I study it now and more more recently, it's certainly a skill that I think can be transferable to any kind of profession where you have these kind of stress peaks that you want to build your people up for so that you don't suffer from things like attrition or burnout and things like that. Yeah. So Greg, I was thinking about as Dan was talking about ranger school and remember, I remember you telling me how you so enjoyed going to lone ranger school when you were <laughs> a little, a little kid. And I was thinking, boy, that must be pretty similar. I did. Well, dad, my dad was a Marine drill instructor, a World War II Marine drill instructor, and he had 10 kids. His goal in life was toughening us up, I think, for the world is what he thought he was doing. After I graduated from Mizzou, I said, uh, hey, dad, I'm going to move to Chicago. And my dad said, Chicago, they eat guys like you for breakfast in Chicago. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, okay, I'm going anyway. So anyway, I digress. Well, so Dan, can you yeah. <laughs> can you give us an example of how you teach this curriculum about emotional survival to those taking the class? Yeah, so let me give you a quick scene setter. So at the Navy Leadership School where I work, the you know a lot of times for the more senior courses for the people about to become commanders of ships, for example, they'll bring their spouses, and the spouses actually have a separate course. But there are lessons that we put them together for, and this is one of those lessons. So imagine being in a room filled with, you know, a bunch of Navy senior leaders with their husbands and wives, their spouses. And I write on the board, every sailor deserves blank percent of your effort, right? And I ask them to answer that question. Of course, everyone, you know, immediately says 100%, 100%, right? And then I'll write on the board right below that, my family deserves blank percent of my effort. And you can imagine that, you know, the, the tension in the room as spouses are looking at their sailors, <laughs> trying to figure out how they're going to answer this question. <laughs> oh, my. So right. remarkably, that answer is also always 100%. And so very quickly, <laughs> you start to see that there's a little bit of a math problem in this. And that, and then I end it with, you know, my self-care deserves blank percent of my effort. And that kind of introduced this topic that you, you can't give 100% to everything all the time to everyone. And it just tries to open that window for, hey, let's have a conversation about how do you endure in this high stress job you're about to go into so that you come out of it, not only with a successful command tour, but also a strong, resilient family, for example. Wow. So this is worth the whole podcast right there. And for, for those of you, you, we sh you usually talk to the, at the end about how do people get in touch with Dan Cormier, but this is where you want to, this is where you want to bring Dan in because that conversation by itself you know, 100, do, do I even say 100% of self-care has nothing to do with the percentage of time. It's, do I actually perform in that space? Do I even pay attention to that? Which I think the answer is loaded. And that is no, very few people do that where they're so dedicated to those first two. This is where you'd want to use Dan and his teachings. Now, in one of our conversations before the podcast, you mentioned the importance of having a balanced program for self-renewal in four areas of your life. Just to touch on a couple of things, four areas of your life, physical, social, emotional, mental, and spiritual. You related to this, this to the sharpening the saw analogy, which is a big theme in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Expand on this one for us. Yeah. So the, the first thing that we, we usually go over is to first understand what is happening to you physically. So, you know, in psychology, th there's a law out there called the Yerkes-Dotson law. It's been out there since early 1900s. If you think of a bell curve, it's basically the argument that 
as stress increases, your performance actually can increase. So if you have performance on one axis and stress on another axis, up to a certain point, stress is actually good. It actually builds performance. But if the stress gets too high, you actually hit a tipping point and you go down the backside of that bell curve. And that's where you start to see where performance is basically being negatively affected by stress. So one of the things we try to explain to our students is to kind of understand what's going on with you physically. So without geeking out too much on the science, but you basically have an autonomic nervous system. And when you're under stress, your sympathetic basically activates. And this is your fight flight response to things. And here's where your body gets an adrenaline dump. You get a cortisol dump, for example, and it basically makes you super alert. You start to see things like your pupils will enlarge, your heart rate increases, you know, all of these kinds of things. What we also know is if you go up too high, you know, when you go beyond what is an appropriate level into what we call hypervigilance, that constant dump of adrenaline and cortisol, basically your body's got to do something with it. And that's where you see people basically fall down the backside of that and crash afterwards. So the typical example would be, you know, the person who's really high at work, they're always on, they're excited, they're completely focused, and they get home and they become a couch potato, right? So you can imagine, you know, the weekly conversation with the spouse of what do you want for dinner? And I don't care, right? So what you start to see is people start associating work with good and home life with bad. So you get this social kind of dynamic or negativity from it as well, but it can also have long-term effects on your health and those kinds of things. Another good way of thinking of this hypervigilance or this need to kind of control going into hypervigilance, think about a basketball player. A basketball player plays at a high level of performance with high level of arousal or stress. But then when they go to the free throw line, what do they do? They stop. They take some deep breaths. They're really trying to calm their body down, get out of that hypervigilance so that they can do a routine act like a free throw. So the, the important point there is just to know that you can control some of this reaction and you can make conscious decisions, make intentional decisions on whether you go into hypervigilance or not. But if you do, you, you know you're going to pay for it at the back end. Boy, that's a big statement. And I think as I'm hearing you talk about that, some things come into mind. My first was playing sports as a kid and having that fear of failing creep in. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking myself out of performance. Okay. And then gradually, as I got more and more comfortable with it and I started to understand myself better, I'm thinking now more in high school. Then I started to realize, okay, I've seen this before. I've done this before. And now you're starting to, your self talk improves. You're, your performance starts to improve. And I see that in my coaching even now. And so uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. When uh, Dan was giving the, the basketball player shooting the free throw analogy, I was reminded of, I, I read this story about the Phil Jackson, the Bulls coach and the Lakers coach. And one of the players said he was talking to him about getting, you know, concentrating in, a, in a, the clutch and a free throw. And he said, do you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever have a place in your house you would go to sit and be by yourself and it was quiet and you felt safe there? And I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, before you take the shot, go there. <laughs> right. And Phil mentioned, you know, the uh, Stephen Covey's, you know, his seventh habit is sharpening the saw. You know, and he tells the story of the 
the person going out in the woods and you see somebody basically sawing away at a tree and it's, there's a lot of smoke coming, but the saw is dull. Therefore, they're not getting a lot of results. And he basically convinced them to stop for a minute, sharpen their saw, and then they go back and they cut the tree down quickly and easily. And it's just this idea that, you know, when we talk about mental and emotional toughness, it's, you know, having this balanced approach to your life so that you you build that resilience, you can bounce back quickly, but your saw is always kind of sharp. You're always ready. So if you have to go into hypervigilance, you can deal with it and you can manage it effectively. Another example would be think of NASCAR, you know, you're trying to win the race, you're going around the track, but then all of a sudden you have to pull into a pit stop. What's going through your mind when you're in that pit stop? You're seeing other cars pass you by. You feel like you're starting to lose the race, but you also know that if you don't do that, your tires could blow, you could run out of gas, there could be something more catastrophic that could occur. So it's a calculated decision to to help you win races and everyone stops in the pit stop. You know, it's part of the routine. So it's just this idea of not just being on autopilot anymore, being much more conscious and intentional about how you approach work-life balance and all of those other factors that Stephen Covey talks about with sharpening your saw, your body, social, mind, and soul. So Dan, as a leader, you're helping your team members sharpen their saw. How do you do this with the, the people you work with professionally? So in the Army, the Army's had a master resiliency program for a while, and it's actually a course that we send mid and senior leaders to that's designed to basically allow them to bring that back to their units and, and talk about it and have these kind of conversations so that people... Because the first step is like just being aware that this is what's happening to you. It's a physical response to stress that you can manage, right? So that's the first step, just kind of being able to recognize when you're going into hypervigilance, when your heart rate's going up, when your blood pressure is rising, so that you can make a conscious choice, should I go into hypervigilance or not, you know? And often what you'll find is by developing that mindfulness, people start to basically control themselves and don't let themselves go into hypervigilance. Don't overreact. Don't become over-emotional when something bad happens at work, for example, or something negative occurs. So they learn to self-regulate in that sense, and they don't go into hypervigilance as much, so therefore they don't have to pay it back at the back end. And you know, one of the key techniques that you, know, you can't control your heart rate, you can't control your blood pressure, but you can control your breathing. So actually breathing is a pretty pragmatic, normal skill that, that lots of programs teach that's just designed to get you to refocus, you know, to self-regulate a little bit and to become more intentional about what you're about to do. So you can imagine, you know, if you're in a four-man stack about to go in and clear a room in an army infantry platoon, there's nerves, your mind's racing, you're thinking about everything that could go bad, you know, all these things. The way you control that is you have to refocus yourself. And sometimes just taking a deep breath or doing some sort of box breathing exercise is enough to get you focused on the task at hand, which is more likely to get you out of there safely. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, having gone through, and Greg's aware of this, Dan, you are too, that, you know, having gone through a, a recent mental health episode, some anxiety and some, you know, where I had difficult time turning work off, I was too obsessed with, with that hypervigilance. I was in that space all the time that through meditation, through coaching, through therapy, was able to start to breathe again. Actually, breathing was the primary function here. And learning how to practice those elements 
that I needed to pay attention to. And you guys saw this firsthand for me and I have no trouble sharing it, but it was scary time because I just didn't have the techniques. Yeah. It was interesting because I, I told Dan when he was, you know, introducing some of these concepts to me that I've, I always remember hearing that great professional athletes are able, some of them are able to like slow the game down in their mind while they're playing. They're not all super jacked up all the time that when it's, you know, time for clear thinking and to direct their energy, they're, they're very skilled at that. I always found that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, And Phil brings up a good point, you know, that I talked about this association that people start to make between work being fun and exciting and then home life being dull and boring and, you know, fatiguing. Think about, you know, we usually ask people in our classes, like how many of you are adrenaline junkies? You ride motorcycles, you like to go parachuting on the weekend, you know, whatever it is. How many of you are, you know, the, the hot pepper person or the wasabi eater? Because it's the same kind of thing. You're basically initiating a high stress response in your body where you're getting this adrenaline or cortisol dump and then it feels good. Right. Just like we see with kids with social media or or even adults today with social media, that they like just getting that little rush every time someone likes something they posted or whatever it is. So these things are addicting. And the important part is to realize what's happening to you so you don't just become a one dimensional person. There's a great story from uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, who wrote The Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, which basically is treating the same kind of problem from the law enforcement perspective. But he said he was at a book signing one time and a guy came up to him and said, hey, I'd like to buy three books. Would you sign them? And he said, well, who would you like me to address them to? And he said, my three ex-wives. Wow. And he thought he was joking. And the guy said, no, I'm really serious. I want them to know that it wasn't my fault, that it wasn't intentional. And, you know, so he signed the books for them, but it's just this idea that, you know, we get caught up in, in our identities and our, in the, in this, all this chemical rush that our jobs give us. And if you're not a balanced person, eventually it's going to catch up to you. And that's where you see a lot of attrition in, in business, you know, burnout, things like that. That's just not healthy. So first understanding it and having some key coping skills is a key and essential way to not only empower your workforce, but retain them as well. With that being said, by the way, you told me that story before about the uh, not being, it wasn't intentional. You know, what, what happened here was not my intent, but it occurred. And now having awareness of it now, going back and saying, you know, I realize I have to own this part of it. That's profound. And, you know, you talk about emotional toughness and controlling fight or flight. What are some of the key techniques maybe for a listener that they could they could do? You touched on a few of them. Breathing is an example. Are there any others? Yeah, absolutely. So in the Navy, the, the Navy's been using a warrior toughness model. And they basically, it's, it's a four-step process that's designed to help people focus on what they want the outcome to be ahead of time. So for example, you set a goal, you set a short-term goal, and they're doing this in everything from basic training to ROTC programs to the Naval Academy. But it's basically, okay, I got this goal. I want to do this well on this test, or I want to pass this physical event, whatever it is. And then you talk through, okay, now what are you going to do to get there? How are you going to prepare, right? What's your plan of action? You know, it's just a, a systematic kind of problem solving approach to make it much more apparent that this is something I'm trying to accomplish. 
and then you execute it and then you reflect on it. How well did I do? If I didn't do well, why didn't I do well? Was it something that, you know, some sort of error during preparation? I didn't plan right. I didn't execute the plan that I actually prepared. Things like that. It's a simple four-step process. And there's lots of others out there. But the gist of it is when you want something and you have a goal that you really want, you're more likely to stick with it when that uncomfortableness occurs, right? Our brains tend to have this kind of breaking mechanism so that when you feel uncomfortable, you're a little bit tired, you're a little bit fatigued, whatever you want to call it, you tend to back off, say, I can't do it, right? But when you actually have a goal that you've committed to, that you've prepared yourself for, you tend to push yourself a little bit harder. And it's a way that you can kind of overcome these kind of mental blocks that really limit people in most of their lives. In the military, we see this, you know, I remember a story from airborne school, you know, we, they told us, Hey, we're going to go on a five mile run. And, and it was like five laps, right? So it was a, a mile laps. We finished the fifth mile and people were falling out. And at airborne school, if you fell out twice during the week, you basically get kicked out. So people were falling out a little bit during the run. As soon as we got to the end point, they didn't tell us to stop. We just kept going. And within 100 yards, about another 5% of the people fell out, like talking like 20, 30 people. Like it was like amazing. And then they had to stop, right? And they were basically teaching us that, you know, you had this mental block that you couldn't go beyond five miles, but you could have ran another 100 meters, but you convinced yourself you couldn't run another lap, right? So this mental block is basically holding you back from peak performance. So it's things like that that you can do to kind of, you know, basically up your game, but also do it in a way that keeps your saw sharp. Wow. That's, that's a great story. Great example. Greg, we probably, I guess, ought to wrap at this point. Maybe one more question, you think? Yeah, I do have one more question for Dan. So Dan, you recently earned an advanced certification in Hogan Assessments. Hogan is a global leader in providing research-based consulting and assessment solutions that include reducing turnover and increasing productivity by hiring the right people, developing key talent, and evaluating leadership potential. What was your motivation for earning this certification? So one of the things that uh, a lot of the leader development programs in the military do is to encourage and foster self-awareness, right? So when we think about emotional intelligence, you basically have, I think of it as two components. You have an internal component, self-awareness for self-control, external component, social awareness, for kind of relationship management or, or social control. So the internal part is you gotta, you gotta be mindful. You gotta know yourself. So throughout the continuum of educational um, experiences that they have, so different grades, they come back to the schoolhouse for educational opportunities. We expose them, for example, in the Navy to different self-assessment tools that are designed to help build that self-awareness so that they can then apply self-control. And if you think about it in the business world today, you know, I would argue that leadership is at a premium. You know, it's easy to be a leader under ideal circumstances. The challenge that people are seeing today, everything from quiet quitting to hybrid workforces, that uh, organizations are depending on leaders to be more productive today, to make good decisions, to understand and manage things like market trends, to set good vision, to know their people, to accomplish tasks, all these kinds of things. And, you know, the, one of the ways to get after that is to build this self-awareness so that people become more effective as leaders. And the thing I liked about the Hogan assessment, and we, I think of the Hogan as one of the gold standards in the business world as where we're borrowing it from, 
is that it really it breaks away from your self-perception and gets after your reputation, right? The, the, the dynamic way that the assessment is conducted, it, it basically reflects how other people are, tend to see you based on how you answer certain questions. And I won't go into all the science, but the important part there is you start to understand that your reputation is more important to your leadership effectiveness than your self-perception. So you may think you're, you have a great open door policy that you want, that people can approach you, but if no one does, why is that, right? Your reputation may be something very different than your self-perception. So the more self-aware you are, the more you can actually go after those factors, they're going to impact your leadership effectiveness. Yeah, that's a big one. And boy, I've, I'm reflecting back on my leadership journey. There were times when I did this well, and there were times when I was so, so unaware of what that meant. And there's a whole podcast just in how to overturn that one. But Dan, you know, we're going to wrap it today. Always good to have you. How do people get in touch? You know, for example, somebody's on the call today and say, we've got a large group of veterans at work in our firm. This is fantastic stuff. We've got, we want to talk about high performance. We want to talk about how do you apply military themes to business? I mean, how did people get in touch with you to work together and get in touch with your emotional survival program? I know you have other programs, but how would they get in touch with you that way? So, the, the, Phil, the simplest way is just go to Dan at SeaCaptainCoaching.com or go to the SeaCaptainCoaching.com website and just reach out to us. But I'd also emphasize that, you know, emotional toughness is not just for your veteran workforce. It's for anybody. You know, we're basically taking techniques. There's a lot of cross-pollinization between the business world, between the first responder world, the military and I think that these are these are ideas that are applicable across your workforce, particularly if you're in a high stress or you're seeing things like high burnout um, and, and a lot of attrition in your workforce. This could be a tool that could actually help. Well, it definitely helps and hopefully helped all of you today on the call. Greg, thanks as usual for your preparation. Uh, it was terrific. And Dan, uh, great, great to spend time with you uh, again. Well, thank you for having me. And it was great being able to share this with yeah. your audience. Do we, do we get to fall well, out? Hopefully now? it can help some more people out. <laughs> yeah, fall out. Yeah, that was my dad's line <laughs> when he wanted me to chill out as a kid. He'd say, drop your pack and stand at ease. <laughs> so, All right. Thanks, Dan. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep. Dan, good to be with you. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Sea Captain Way podcast. If you found the conversation valuable, please like, share, and post a review on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Sea Captain Coaching and how you can start taking advantage of our purpose-driven coaching guidance, visit us at seacaptaincoaching.com and get the Sea Captain view on navigating uncharted waters of growth. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow us at Sea Captain Coaching on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Wishing you fair winds and a following sea on your journey. 